now all of that is in the past in fact in 2023 uh, the telangana high court struck down the ordinance mm -hmm. and said that if a microfinance company is registered at rbi mm -hmm. no state government can make separate laws to regulate it mm -hmm. so what has the best thing happened in the last two three years is the regulatory mechanism of the microfinance become extremely clear it is free from any political influence it is free from government influence and they are now i think i think they are absolutely uh, poised for golden years ahead of them absolutely So welcome back to the 17th episode of the Indian Market Story. This is the second in our two-part series on NBFCs. I didn't think it was going to be a two-part series, but you know, with such a breadth of companies to cover, uh, it's such an interesting space to keep discussing. Absolutely, I think, and uh, you know, the NBFC story is also the India story. Yeah, and it's all about um, uh, a lot of the average Indian citizen acquiring mm -hmm. assets, mm -hmm. be it a house, be it a car. Uh, be it consumer loans mm -hmm. so i think that uh, so long as that juggernaut is moving nbfcs will not have a problem in terms of uh, finding new borrowers yeah and if they just manage their collection sky's the limit yeah and i think one thing we discussed in our previous podcast is how credit penetration in india is only at about 4 5% so these guys have huge huge <laughs> runway left to continue growing at these really sky high rates that's why right. i think in varun also the industry is getting more and more sophisticated and it's getting better regulated as well and the higher the regulation the better it is for the investor right because it brings about more transparency more consistency easy comparability and that certainly gives a lot of comfort to investor so i think in our last podcast we talked about some of the behemoths of the nbfc space and some of the bigger winners uh in terms of you know bajaj finance in particular and some of the losers in terms of lic housing finance or you know even piramal finance to some degree um but we didn't really talk about the hyper specialized lenders in the auto finance space the gold loan space or the microfinance institutions so why don't we get into those because there's there's some really interesting stories to tell in talking about companies like chola mandalam so um the thing about auto finance is that actually the birth of the nbfc space started with housing and with auto finance that was where the maximum demand was there for uh, loans from the retail side and companies like shiram cholamandalam sundaram finance you know mnm finance and originally bajaj auto finance uh, they all were came into focus because they wanted to lend to the lend against uh, new vehicle sales but shiram finance had a slightly different business model varun they wanted to lend against second hand commercial vehicles now the beauty of that is again the yields are very high 20% plus mm -hmm. because they're lending against a second hand vehicle there some amount of uh, i would say uh, a knack or some strategy, strategy involved. involved in trying to assess the value of the second hand vehicle right and then of course collection comes into play so they fine tune that particular mechanism where they could lend against um, second hand uh, vehicles and that business just grew phenomenally until the ilfs crisis started to hit them and then the auto sector also started to do uh, got into a bit of a crunch yeah. time and uh, the entire transportation sector per se went under stress when the mm -hmm. economy started to stagnate mm -hmm. uh, and therefore they had again yeah, surge in fees yeah we've seen in the last uh, in the automobile podcast over the last 5 years 
auto sales have more or less stagnated and that's pv sales but also two wheeler sales and also and commercial vehicle and sales. commercial vehicle sales as well that's the most cyclical part of the auto industry right so hopefully you know as the auto sales recovers uh, you know you can see these auto financiers growing once again at strong rates absolutely i think uh, that uh, as you said it's cyclical it depends upon oem sales but at this point of time next 2 3 years looks exceptionally good for the vehicle financiers also and shiram finance also you know after going through a lot of turbulent times and where the stock prices have uh, lost a lot of value they decided to merge all their associate companies and now become a more broad based uh, nbfc but largely it is a vehicle financier and again if you see their names they're exceptionally high but uh, i'm not pleased with their collection efficiency yeah their npas have shot up tremendously in the past and i keep comparing them to cholamandalam mm-hmm. which is a much smaller player but very very responsible lending i just don't know how cholamandalam does it but you look at shiram finance you look at mnm finance mm-hmm. okay you look at some of the other auto financiers they all have gone through a lot of uh, stress mm-hmm. their npas have gone through the roof in the past mm-hmm. and they have had to slow down their lending as well because of that but cholamandalam is just a class apart yeah so let's maybe give before we talk about cholamandalam yeah. yeah just before we talk about cholamandalam in a little bit more detail because it's a very unique company let's maybe give our viewers a sense of what the figures for these companies look like you know and i just want to compare the yes, two the comparison is important yeah. yes so um for shiram and mnm finance both of them have net npas of around 4% or so shiram is 4.47 mnm is 4.11 uh but chola mandalam is half that just a, just over half that at 2.7% only um in terms of growth chola mandalam is 14% and shiram is done relatively well at about 13% but mnm is again only at 4% and uh, it seems though that they're all maintaining a relatively competitive net interest margin of roughly 7% so again it's like you said for chola mandalam what they've got right is at collection absolutely i think uh MNM Finance and Shiram Transport, as was called earlier, have destroyed a lot of value. They have hardly given any returns over the past uh, mm-hmm. several years or so. And I, I sh- should mention over here yeah, yeah. that uh, Chola Mandalam ten-year CAGR return is thirty-eight percent. Yeah. Same for Shiram is eleven percent and three percent for MNM Finance. Yes. Yeah. In fact, it might be a little bit worse for MNM Finance because, as we speak, I think their results came out a little while yes, ago. They are disappointing again. Very disappointing results. So, um, yeah, so there's a trick I think behind collecting because you're in a catch twenty two situation. If you repossess the commercial vehicle, mm-hmm. then trying to sell it off is a very challenging, uh, mm-hmm. you know, position. At the same time, if you don't collect, then your NPAs are piling up. So it's yeah. a it's it's a very difficult call for a management. and cholamandalam certainly has scored brilliantly over there and from that point of view the street has rewarded it handsomely absolutely that pe is uh, 35 and yeah. you look at shiram you look at mnm i think shiram is at 18 uh, sorry 13 and mnm is at 18 which i don't quite understand but uh, still so varun if you just did a pe multiple to npa mm-hmm. you will realize that there's a inverse correlation the right. lower the npa the higher the pe multiple right the street doesn't care so much about your growth rates Mm-hmm. it cares a hell of a lot about your collection efficiency and how what level of npas you are at right and the trick of investing in nbfc is don't go by the growth rates go by the collection efficiency how was the in the npa track record mm-hmm. if that has been sound 
I can guarantee you that that's the company that you have to own for the next 5, 10, 15 years. It will grow phenomenally well. And it's a cultural issue. Okay. I've seen that that companies which have a nice clean collection record like HDFC, Bajaj Finance, Cholamandalam, they maintain it consistently over decades. Mm-hmm. But companies which have got a patchy collection record, you may have periods where you feel they're doing well. Okay. Their NPAs have come down. But then they suddenly start to move up again. They, they inch start inching up. So it's a very cultural, uh, you know, phenomena why some NBAC do exceedingly well and others do not. Right. So moving on from the auto financing companies, you know, some of whom have a very spotty track record with collections. Let's talk about a set of companies that have outstanding net interest margins and also outstanding collection efficiency. Um, the gold loan finance companies, Manapuram and Muthut Finance in particular, that have an outstanding track record. So last time we spoke about how Bajaj Finance has an exceptional net interest margin of 13%. Um, it seems like they're matched by Manapuram and Muthut, who each have a net interest margin of 15% for Manapuram and 13% for Muthut. So what's going on in gold finance? To put it crudely, gold finance companies are taking over the role of the money lender. You know, in ancient India, for centuries, there have been these money lenders who would take gold from a family and give loans at exorbitant interest rates. And their role has been taken over by the gold loan companies, but of course, in a more responsible manner at significantly lower interest rates and giving decent protection to the borrower as well. So they have gradually expanded into the scope of the average money lender, which the families would go to in the past. And because of the product, I think there is a great deal of safety in lending to against gold gold ornaments or against gold itself. <clears throat> and the reason for that is that, again, I think after a house, the ornaments that a woman mm-hmm. owns has got a lot of sentimental attachment. Right. And if they are pledging it to get a loan, it's for a very uh, important purpose. And they don't want to default on it. Because that has got sentimental values being handed down from generation. Of course. At the same time, uh, gold prices generally in India have been on a rising spree. Mm-hmm. So if you take in a loan two, three years ago, uh, the loan gold prices keep going up. So the value of the gold actual also yeah. keeps on moving up. So that provides the comfort for the gold loan companies. Yeah. And most importantly, Varun, it's a very uh, difficult business because uh, you have to keep the... Mm-hmm. gold loan separate, the gold ornaments separate from each of the borrowers mm-hmm. you have to have super security to ensure mm-hmm. that they don't get stolen mm-hmm. and you cannot get conned by lower quality of gold as mm-hmm. well so right from assessing the gold uh, marking it storing it valuing it from time to time and then lending it in a reasonable manner to the uh, borrower I think that's their key USP of these companies. Mm-hmm. Again, these loans are short-term loans, typically mm-hmm. a few months to a year, 15 months at max. Mm-hmm. And they're able to get significantly higher interest rates mm-hmm. because of the actual cumbersome nature mm-hmm. of lending against gold. See, yeah. lending against a, a house or against a against a vehicle is relatively easier because the asset can be valued quite easily. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to gold, storage, security, all of these things also yeah. come into play. You need physical <clears throat> infrastructure, right? Like, you're not holding a house. You're not holding a car. You just have the paper documentation, but you have to hold the gold physically. That's, and not just at one location. Right. Branches across the country. Of course. Because you may have a few branches, 
in a particular area but then the gold has to be stored very close to because mm-hmm. if the borrower wants it back it, you cannot store uh, borrowers uh, mm-hmm. mumbai borrowers gold in bangalore right. so there are lots of logistical issues security issues around it which is why these companies have had a super run yeah, for yeah. the past 2-3 uh, decades or yeah, so. Yeah, they've done exceptionally, mm. exceptionally well. So let's maybe just review the operational figures for our viewers. Okay. Um, both Manapuram and Muthut have grown at over 10% in terms of net advances over the last 5 years. Manapuram at 13.9% and Muthut at 12.75%. And they've maintained <coughs> extremely, extremely healthy margins. So 15% net interest margin for Manapuram and 13.68% for Muthut. These are the average margins for the last five years. That's yes. correct. These are the average margins. And the appreciation of the stock price, five yeah. years. I think we'll come to the stock price in a second, but we always talk about you originate, you distribute, and you collect. And That's both right. of them have had super collection eff- efficiency but as well. It's getting a bit uh, tarnished if you see lately. I've been looking at the chart for uh, Manapuram from 0.3% in FI19 it mm-hmm. went to as high as 2.72% when it then came down to 1.1%. That's because of higher provisioning. And Mutut went from uh, 2.72% all the way to 3.79%. Yeah. So there's a story here that I want to talk about. <clears throat> Is that traditionally it, it was extremely safe uh, a financing business. Mm-hmm. But it has got crowded now. Right? We've seen the entry of many banks, many new generation fintech companies also are lending against gold. Existing NBFCs like LNT, Bajaj Finance, they're also getting into the gold loan business. All of them are being attracted by the high net interest margin and and low NPA. So it's mm-hmm. a great, uh, you know, uh, sector to lend to from their perspective. Mm-hmm. They need to get the logistics right, mm-hmm. which is just a matter of time and investing and getting the right kind of people. So what has happened with these two companies last couple of years or so is because of intense competition, there's been a talent drain <clears throat> for one. For two, uh, the yields have come down because the newer players want to undercut them. And in order to grow the loan book, Mutut and Manapuram have had to slightly lower the lending standards, which is being reflected in their mm-hmm. higher NPAs. Right. So while it was a great lucrative business for years and years, up to two, three years ago, going forward, I'm not so sure that they will have the same kind of net interest margins. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they'll compress. And NPAs also will get normalized to other industry standards. Mm-hmm. So I'm a bit cautious when it comes to gold loans per se, uh, because their competitive edge being managing their network, managing the uh, storage of gold, managing the assessment of gold valuation, mm-hmm. all of those, the competition is catching up very fast over there. Right. So I guess <clears throat> uh, maybe just to, to ask, because one thing that strikes me about both of them is they're very cheaply valued, right? Manapuram, which is really the gold standard in gold lending mm. is only trading at a 7.8 PE and Muthut as well, right? Which has done exceptionally well, um, is only trading at a 14.8 PE. Now that makes them to an amateur investor like myself, extremely cheap. Am I missing something here? So I thought Muthut is fairly valued at 14 times. Manapuram tried to foray into a lot of non-gold loans. Mm-hmm. They went into MFI, they went into personal loans and many other loan products. They want to transform themselves into a diversified NBFC. Mm-hmm. But that has not worked out well for them. All the non-gold loans also, there have been a spike in their NPAs. And now again, they're going back to their knitting, which is going more and more aggressively on the gold loan side. But 
per se gold loan business has got mm. a great potential because indian households hold tons and tons of yeah. gold 11% of all gold in the world is held by indian households alone that's right so it's a huge opportunity for the industry mm-hmm. and uh, it's a good growth opportunity for non gold loan players to get into that business as well mm-hmm. ifl finance is getting very aggressive into gold loans mm-hmm. there's csb bank also which is uh, you know the primary product is the gold loan so there's a lot of competition but still there's enough scope for the players to uh, mm-hmm. in- increase the market size and still earn a reasonable return on investment mm-hmm. i personally feel that lending against gold is a kind of a safe product mm-hmm. so long as you don't get carried away and mm-hmm. don't have those you know aggressive targets in terms of mm-hmm. loan growth yeah but still 7.8 seems far far too cheap that's right but you know the performance the last few quarters has been disappointing and as i said you know look at the np and the pa so you know the np has been shooting up for manapuram and some of the other non gold businesses are not really picked up overall sentiment in gold loans also has deteriorated mm-hmm. so many combinations coming into play there have been some controversies also around the management let's not get into that so many factors are there but let's just put it that manapuram and mutut are not the absolute gold standard when it comes to nbfcs all right understood so i guess uh, you know we'll see what the what the path forward is like for them but another really interesting nbfc sector for me is the microfinance institutions and um, i think they they maybe came to public prominence around uh, you know when the gramin bank in bangladesh uh was really publicized after i believe their founder won a nobel prize yes um but they've really exploded in india uh, because there's a huge demand for credit of small ticket sizes in semi urban and rural areas and they've also been some really fantastic wealth creators um that's right so let's first explain to our viewers how the microfinance uh, business works it's a lot of it is also oh, most of it is group lending mm-hmm. most of it also is to women mm-hmm. so what they try and do over here is that in a village a group of women will come together anywhere from 10 15 to 50 or so and the microfinance uh, lender would give a small ticket loan to each of them right could be from 10000 to 30 40000 rupees right. or so and every week mm-hmm. these women have to pay a small amount back to the microfinance company mm-hmm. and if even one of the ladies fail the others have to cover up for it right that's a great business model perfected by the gramin bank mm-hmm. and then in india bandhan mm-hmm. came into place and they also grew phenomenally there was sks microfinance mm-hmm. which was renamed to bharat financial it got merged into indusind bank didn't a bunch of microfinance institutions have problems with the That's government right. we come to that as well but the business model is a very unique business model it's called the group lending model mm-hmm. where uh, it's lent to a group and the group is responsible for making sure the repayments go to the mfi yeah. and these are typically small ticket a lot of cash also is mm-hmm. being handled over here because they want to be paid in cash and the repayment also is in cash so there are logistical issues mm-hmm. uh, you need to have a very wide branch network mm-hmm. you need to have many many thousands of officers on this on this right. on the foot you know on the right. roads for the entire lending and collection mechanism and technology nowadays is playing a great great role so coming back to what happened within the microfinance industry i think 2010 was a watershed year at that in 2010 andhra pradesh government they uh, issued an ordinance Mm-hmm. which restricted the scope of the microfinance companies they were prevented from giving dual loans that would take mm-hmm. government permission 
there were certain restrictions on how they could collect the money from right. the borrowers and there were many other such uh, hindrances mm-hmm. because of which the entire microfinance industry in Andhra Pradesh collapsed mm-hmm. and the MFIs operating over there were sitting on huge NPAs especially company like SKS Microfinance which was focused in Andhra Pradesh. All through the last several years, the last decade or so, we have seen that there is political interference mm-hmm. when it comes to collection. So the year in which there is a state election, mm-hmm. generally politicians will promise that you know they will wave off the loans and they may wave off the loans given by state banks or cooperative banks but they do not have the power to waive loans given by mm-hmm. microfinance companies. But the average borrower thinks that their loan to a microfinance will also get waived. And right. therefore, the lending, the repayment discipline deteriorates. Right. But and now all of that is in the past. In fact, in 2023, uh, the Telangana High Court struck down the ordinance mm-hmm. and said that if a microfinance company is registered at RBI, mm-hmm. no state government can make separate laws to regulate it. Mm-hmm. So... What has the best thing happened in the last two, three years is the regulatory mechanism of the microfinance has become extremely clear. It is free from any political influence. It is free from government influence. And they are now, I think they are absolutely uh, poised for golden years ahead of them. Absolutely. And I think, so two microfinance companies in particular that we want to There are to only dis- two left actually. Right. So Credit Access Grameen and Spandana Spurti. That's and right. both of them have a stellar track record over the last five years. Absolutely. Across all the relevant figures. And maybe let's share that performance with the viewers. Um, Credit Access Grameen has grown their net advances at 23% compounded over the last five years. That's with COVID, where they could not lend as aggressively as they did. Right. But I think MFIs can grow at double the industry growth rates. Right. And we'll come to that because both of them have reported their Q1 results very recently and it's been stellar Q1 results. But we'll come to that in a second. Um, Spandana Spurti as well. 13, 12.7% compounded growth in net advances. And this is without, at least through COVID, any deterioration in net interest margins, any deterioration in collection efficiency. So credit access Grameen, net interest margin of 11.62%. And Spandana Spurti even higher at 14.75%. Highest in the industry, higher than Bajaj Finance Higher also. than Bajaj Finance Yes, also. that's exactly <laughs> what I was about That's to it because they're lending at uh, 23% thereabouts, 20 mm-hmm. to 23% thereabouts. And they're borrowing at 7, 6, 7% uh, or so. Mm-hmm. So that spread is all for them. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are a lot of costs involved in terms mm-hmm. of collection, in terms of lending. So, But nonetheless, I think it's a great ROI business. Right. And I think that's obviously also because they're able to keep delinquency down. And again, let's compare their uh, NPAs. net NPAs, uh, where Credit Access Grameen is at only 0.74 and Spandana Spurti is at just just under 1%. So they're even better than the auto finance companies or, uh, you know, some of the home finance companies where they have security. Exactly. It's, that's an amazing part of this business model. And it is not very easy to replicate. Uh, it is difficult because of the logistics involved mm-hmm. and the kind of talent you require to ensure that you have identified the right borrower mm-hmm. and, of course, the entire collection mechanism. Right. And another thing that, you know, maybe I want to ask is, so we spoke about the Q1 results. Both of them have net profits that's up over 100% year on year. Partly base effect, but it's been a great quarter. 
Uh, see, I think rural lending is coming back really strong and demand for credit is growing rapidly over there. Also, one of the beauty of uh, microfinance is the average ticket size is keeping on going up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that automatically the same lender, anyway, you have mm -hmm. access, uh, you have the connect, you have the relationship. If you if she was born in 25,000, it goes to 30, 35, mm -hmm. 40, 50,000 as well. Right. So that's one big advantage, uh, which is not there with the other right. NBFCs per se. That the ticket size, average ticket size keeps on increasing. Right. And the interest rates are pretty much steady. Yeah. So one question I have in particular, right? So Bajaj Finance, which is the gold standard for NBFCs, they have roughly 13% net interest margin. They have sub 1% net NPAs. And they're growing at 16% or so. And they're getting a PE of 40%. I would say more than 16%. They're more like 25-30% sure. range. Okay. Sure. Which yeah, is the yeah, same right. with MFIs I, as well. I believe, well, yeah. uh, uh, I think the Q1 results, they're total advances. 34% 34%. up in net advances. Here's what, I, here's what I don't understand. They're getting a PE of 40. The MFI institutions are getting a PE of just barely 20. So credit access Gramin is at 21.28. <laughs> And Spandana Sputi is at 16.6. And both of them are showing over 100%, you know, year-on-year -year growth or more like 40-50% is what we expect. They're showing great healthy net interest margins. They're showing great healthy collection efficiency. Um, why? I, I mean, is the market missing something? Is there some... No, see, there's always uh, comfort in multi-product lending. There's mm -hmm. no denying that. So, which is why I think uh, Bajaj Finance, and Bajaj Finance is in the class apart, so you cannot compare Bajaj mm -hmm. Finance to any other NBFC. But I think if you compare, excluding Bajaj Finance, all the NBFCs, I think their kind of uh, valuation multiples are more or less similar. Mm -hmm. MFIs, although they have high growth rates, you know, because of the past track record of this political influence and ordinances, COVID, mm -hmm. and the tricky nature of business, you know, uh, investors still have to grapple with the nuances of uh, understanding an MFI. And I've been an MFI investor for, for more than a decade now. I, I saw the crisis in 2010 as well. And I feel that uh, this is really the sunrise uh, segment within the NBFC space. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of time before these MFIs start getting valued at a premium mm -hmm. to the average NBFC as well. It's a very, very difficult business. Mm -hmm. It's a sticky business uh, in, mm -hmm. if you can get it right. Mm -hmm. And it's got great growth potential because I think uh, rural areas are the most underbanked mm -hmm. and underleveraged of all the retail lending products. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we <coughs> spoke about diversification, uh, but just because they're operating at a particular customer segment um, or, you know, or a particular ticket size that I don't necessarily believe that means that they're what they're lending to is necessarily the same thing. Because an MFI in maybe one part of the country might be lending money to buy a cow. In another part of the country, it might be lending to buy a chicken. In another part of the country, it might be scooter, lending to buy anything, seeds, yeah. scooter. There's, just because the, the borrower is the same, that doesn't necessarily mean that the loan product's the same. Uh, the reason for the loan is not the same. Right. That's the big difference over there. Yeah, sure, that's a good point you made. I never thought of it that way. That there's a certain element of diversity over there and there's geographical diversity as well. And even if, if you think about the MFI structure, right, technically it's not just one person that's liable for the loan. There's a group of 15 or so people. And there in itself, inherently, if you think of a village structure, you have three or four industries. Maybe it's not you know much like a city, but there's still several different players. Um, so even within that borrower base, within a single loan, there's a degree of diversification as well. 
Yeah, that's right. I think these are all these strengths of the MFI and the street is gradually discovering them. Mm-hmm. End of the day, there are only two standalone MFIs that you can invest in. Of course, Bajaj Finance, LNT, and some of the other NBSEs also mm-hmm. have small MFI businesses. A lot of the banks also have very mm-hmm. strong MFI uh, divisions as well. Uh, but, you know, because it's part of a large, uh, larger NBFC or a bank, you don't see, really see the impact of it. But it's a, as I said, I repeat it, it's a great business. And credit access per se is in a different class compared to mm-hmm. a lot of the other NBFCs. Right. There again, their collection practices have been phenomenal. Their lending uh, policies have been quite sharp. They've managed through all the turmoil which the MFI has seen. They've tried uh, very aggressively to diversify geographically mm-hmm. so that one or two states you know, do not uh, really mm-hmm. impact them as well. They were very strong in Karnataka. Mm-hmm. And this Karnataka election which went, which of course Congress won, there was hardly any impact on their collection efficiency. Mm-hmm. So I think that MFIs and credit Grameen in particular the business bottle is getting more and more mature mm-hmm. and uh, what they have seen over the last few quarters will give the management a lot more confidence mm-hmm. to grow even more aggressive. Right. <clears throat> so I have a question here because we've at this point, I think we've covered um, everything that there is in the NBFC space. But would you say that the MFIs are the most promising prospect in NBFCs? Or is there something even new or more interesting that investors should be looking at? In the listed space, I think MFIs are the absolute, I would, in terms of growth, I would put them on mm-hmm. top, absolutely on top. Coming to Spandana, there's a small story over there as well. Again, uh, founded by Ms. Padmanaj Reddy, Ms. Reddy, and she grew the business phenomenally and then Kedara mm-hmm. Capital took majority stake. And Kedara wanted to sell the company to Axis Bank. Mm-hmm. And that's where was the fallout between the promoter and the uh, private equity owner of the company. And she was kind of eased out over there. There was a bit of a controversy. Mm-hmm. But now that's behind the company. And while that turmoil was happening, we saw a spike in Spandana's Putti's NPAs. We also saw lending slowing down over there. But that is the past. And I think that if you have a slight leap of faith and a bit of conviction, then there is definitely a valuation gap between credit access Grameen and, and Spandana. Yeah. And that gap can gradually get uh, filled up over there. One risk factor though is that there's always uh, the possibility that Spandana may get acquired by another bank. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I don't want to buy a, I want to buy a pure play MFI. Right. And then I'll be left with only one as Spandana goes away. So I hope it doesn't get acquired and it is run as a standalone company because it's a great business model. Yeah, yeah. And it truly, I think, uh, forget about, uh, you know, the, the business part of it. I think they're doing human service to the nation as well. Yeah. Lending in a responsible manner to the absolute underprivileged mm-hmm. section of the society, helping them make their two ends meet, helping them make progress. Mm-hmm. What more I think you want from these companies? Yeah, yeah. They have the blessings of all their borrowers as well. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I think if they're able to f- properly expand um, and allow the, you know, the, the poorest of the poor to access credit, uh, then the countries as a whole can see exponential growth over the years and i think some of the big inequality problems that we see exactly yeah they can they can get resolved by providing access to um, funds you know when there's really Absolutely. required and they can uh, be used for medical emergencies mm-hmm. overall improve the uh, the lifestyle mm-hmm. of the poorest of the poor right so i think um, on that extremely interesting note 
um, you know, with with the right set of companies that can move the country forward and deliver handsome returns for investors. Um, let's maybe leave our viewers to think about what we've had to share with them today. And uh, hopefully we'll see them back for the 18th episode where we'll, uh, we'll have something new and even more interesting to discuss. Absolutely, Varun. It's a pleasure being on these podcasts. And this one was particularly close to my heart because I have invested at various points of time in these companies. And these are great wealth-creating opportunities. This podcast is produced by Elixir Equities Private Limited, a semi-registered research analyst. Registration number INV 00004787. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Investment in securities market are subject to market risk. We strongly advise all investors to read all related documents carefully before investing.